Good morning. There are several things that you're supposed to do when you're a uh, guest preacher. It's not written down anywhere. You just know you're supposed to do them. You're supposed to say, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> and I am. And you're supposed to say, it's an honor to be here. And it is. And then you're supposed to brag on the preacher that you're preaching for. And that won't be hard to do. Back in the summer, our youngest daughter, Amy, brought her two little girls here for vacation Bible school. And my wife, Dottie, and I came on Friday night for the commencement service. And Jamie spoke just a few minutes at the end. And I thought to myself, I like this guy. He's got it together. Well, I retired uh, in September. Big decision that we faced was where we're we going to go to church. Well, we'd been to several different places. And Amy had uh, said to us, you know, of the churches I've been to, I really like First Baptist the best so we thought we'll we'll just try it out and we sat back over in this corner three Sundays ago and five minutes into Jamie's message I thought this guy really does have it he knows what he's doing he knows the word and he has a heart for God and I told him I'm not telling you anything I haven't told him but I told him I said, you realize that as a pastor myself, I've been listening to preachers all my life, not to criticize, but to try to learn. And I said, uh, I'll put you up there at the top with any that I've ever heard. And I do mean that with all my heart. I've thought about the fact that it might be well for you to form a committee and the committee would be made up of those who know how to spot pulpit committees. <laughs> so if a pulpit committee gets in here some Sunday morning, this committee might want to go and suggest that they might leave. <laughs> or you could take another approach and you could go to them and say, Are you a pulpit committee? Great, we've been praying for some pulpit committee to come for a long time. We've been trying to get rid of our preacher, and we don't know how to do it. And watch him get up and leave and walk out the door. After that Sunday that we were here, Jamie and I had lunch together, and we talked for about two hours. And after got two hours talking together I came away with several impressions number one he's wise beyond his years and then I was shocked to find that he has such limited formal theological education and I was really impressed then you know 
There are guys that can have more theological degrees than a thermometer and not know how to share the word of God in power and truth. He's a keeper, folks, but I think you already know that, right? I want to share with you some this morning out of the book of Job. And I want to begin with a statement. The statement is this. The hardest lessons in life to learn are those we think we already know. The hardest lessons in life to learn are those we think we already know. And that's going to be the situation in the case with Job. The opening verses in this book, and we're going to do a walk through the book. Obviously, we can't do verse by verse, but we're going to do a walk through. Verse 1 said, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Many people have taken the word blameless to mean that he was sinless. That's not what this word means at all. Job was a sinful man. Paul said in Romans 3.10, quoting out of the Psalms, he said, There is none righteous, no, not one. Later on in that same chapter, in verse 23, Paul says, for all have sinned, and that would include Job, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Many believe that Job as a book was the first book in the Old Testament to be written. And that is based on the fact that very, very little is known about the city that Job came from the city, the land of Uz. There's no historical, uh, archaeological evidence to support even where that city existed, though some think it was in North Arabia. If that's true, that this is the oldest book in the Bible, then this book would predate the Pentateuch that Moses wrote where we learn about the giving of the law. So Job lived in a time where there was no law that had been given by God to be the standard for righteousness. But he was a blameless man. There was nothing in his life that you would look at that you consider to be willful sin, willful disobedience to God. The opening scene in this book is a great mystery. I don't understand it. How the source of all evil, who is the devil, Satan himself, and the source of all righteousness, God himself, meet together face to face. As Satan comes into the presence of God, God asks him a question. God didn't need the information. He already knew, but he asked Satan anyway, Where have you been? Satan's response, just hanging out, just walking around, looking at the scenery. God knew better. 
What does the Bible say the devil does? He's a roaring lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour. And that's what he had been doing. And he has observed Job. And he wants to get his hands on Job. And God says to him, as you've been out, supposedly hanging out, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He's my pride and joy. And Job indeed was the pride and joy of God, was proud of him. But the devil says, hey, listen, let me get my hands on him and you watch him. He'll curse you. So God says, okay. There's comfort in what we find in this passage, but there's also some things that disturb us. We see that, first of all, Satan was a created being. That he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time as God is. And he's not omnipotent, doesn't have all power. He's got power, but he doesn't have all power. And God limits what he does. He doesn't do anything without God's permission. Well, you know the story. Job, the richest man in all the world at one moment, and the next moment he has nothing. He's got ten kids. Three daughters, seven sons. They had their own homes, which means Job and Mrs. Job were suffering from the empty nest syndrome. But there's another point that I think is important about knowing that all these kids lived away from home. If there were ten of them, considering the age range, there probably were grandchildren as well. And we really don't know what happened to the grandchildren. But all of his material wealth and his children, gone in a moment. But he blesses God. He gives praise to God. Satan comes back. God says, where you been? Just hanging out. You consider Job? Well, you know what? Doesn't really bother Job that you took his family and all of his material possessions. Let me get my hands on him and I'll make him curse you. God said, okay, but you can't take his life. So suddenly Job has boils all over his body. When I was a kid, I had one boil. Anybody here ever have a boil? One of the most painful things physically, but also socially that you can have. You got a boil? I don't want to be close to you. 
and he's in misery. Well, he's got three friends. There's actually a fourth. Not a whole lot is said about the fourth. But he's got three friends that hear about what has happened to him. And they come. The first one is a man by the name of Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz was very, very wise spiritually. And his wisdom, in a spiritual sense, came because he had a dream one night. You ever been around somebody like that who's had a dream and suddenly they're the most spiritual people in the whole world? I had a lady several years ago, wasn't here in this town, but she came running up to me on Sunday morning. I had a dream last night and I want to tell everybody about it this morning. And I said, well, why don't you tell me first? And it was an R-rated dream. And we decided it best not to let people know about her dream. But that was Eliphaz. He was an expert in spiritual matters now because he had a dream. The second guy was a guy by the name of Bildad. Bildad is the shortest man in the Bible. How do you know that? Because his name is Bildad the Shuhite. Shorter than Nehemiah. Some of you will get that later this afternoon. <laughs> then there was Zophar. Zophar was the world's foremost authority on everything. Ever met anybody like that? Zophar was full of little religious sayings. We still have people today that throw around little religious sayings that are not biblical. Greatest example probably is this. God helps those who help themselves. Isn't that in the Bible? No. In fact, the opposite is true. God moves into those who recognize they can't do it themselves and they must trust Him totally and completely. They arrive seven days. Nobody says anything for seven days because they're so overwhelmed with what has happened to their friend Job. What is going to happen now is that Job's going to speak and then his friends are going to speak and there are going to be these exchanges back and forth. Pretty much what Job said is Job said, I wish I'd never been born. He didn't say he was thinking about committing suicide. He just said, I wish I'd never been born. Ever been there? He finishes what he's going to say. And then the three start. You can summarize pretty much everything that they said in just a few words. 
They were saying, Job, your problem is sin. God wouldn't do all this stuff to you if you hadn't sinned. And we realize that everybody around thinks you're a good guy. And we realize that you've done a whole lot of good things in your lifetime. You've helped a lot of people who are hurting. You've helped a lot of people who are suffering. But we know better. Your problem is sin. If you will just get honest about your sin and confess your sin to God, everything will be all right. I've been guilty of this. I'm sure some of you would agree with me that we all have been guilty of this. When we see somebody going through a rough time in their lives, we conclude, I wonder what sin they committed to make God chastise them this way. Oh, he just had a tragedy in his life. I wonder what sin he committed. He just suffered financial loss. Wonder what thing he did that makes God get mad at him and take away all of his family. That may not be the case. And it is wrong for us to assume that we know what God is doing in other people's lives. We don't. And it's not our responsibility to try to figure all of that out. It's God's responsibility to take care of it. So pretty much, if you wanted to sum it in one word, they were saying, Job, you're a hypocrite. You're not what you pretend to be if you'll just confess your sin. Things will be all right. And Job responds, I am not aware of any sin in my life. If I knew that there was sin in my life, I'd take care of it. God has not revealed to me any sin in my life. Little side point here, folks. When God wants to convict us of sin in our lives, He will do so specifically, not generally. If there's sin in my life and God through the Holy Spirit wants to convict me of some sin in my life, God is specific and puts his finger on this point and said, that's your problem, deal with it. On the other hand, Satan accuses generally, never specifically. There are people running around today all covered up with guilt. And you can ask them, why are you so covered up with guilt? I don't know, I just feel guilty. Is there anything specific about which you feel guilty? No, I just feel guilty. Then if you just feel guilty without anything of a specific nature to be the reason for that guilt, then it's not coming from God because God will convict us specifically the reason you feel guilty is because Satan is accusing you. Get a life, get over it, move on. 
So all of this stuff goes back and forth. Key passage, chapter 27 of Job. Verse 6. I hold fast my righteousness. Oh, key word, my. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me any of the days of my life. Chapter 32. Verse 1. These three men ceased answering Job because Job was righteous in his own eyes. What did Paul write in Romans 3 that we talked about a few minutes ago? There is none righteous. No, not one. Verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What was Job's problem? He was righteous in his own eyes. What's the big problem people face today? We're righteous in our own eyes and we don't see that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, so says Scripture. And for us it must be being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We come to chapter 38. God's been listening all of this time. And God finally says, All right, you guys, shut up. I've heard enough. Time for me to talk. Time for me to speak. And God begins to ask Job questions. I've tried to count the number of questions that God asked Job. I get a different number every time. But there are over 80 of them in rapid-fire succession. What about this, Job? What about that, Job? What about this? It's not a true and false test. It's not a multiple-choice test. It's not a short-answer test. It is an essay test. Job, tell me about this. Explain this to me. If you're so smart and you're so wise, what about this? Chapter 40. God concludes. Verse 2. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee, Lord? I can't answer any of these questions that you've asked me. And then he says, I lay my hand over my mouth. Did you ever say something that the minute you said it, you wished you hadn't said it, and what do you do? Behold, he said, I'm insignificant. Job's saying the same thing that Isaiah said in chapter 6 when he saw the Lord. What did he say? Woe is me. Job's saying, woe is me.
time for me to shut up and start listening to God. Time for me to shut up and start listening to God. Verse 6, chapter 40, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, I'm ready to teach you some things. God starts again with the questions. When he gets through this time, Job is a broken man. Did you hear the word broken? Job is a broken man. Broken of what? Broken of his dependence upon his self-righteousness. I heard somebody say something. (coughs) Excuse me. Years ago, they said God never uses any man greatly until he hurts him deeply. Ouch. God never uses any man greatly until he hurts him deeply. And if you look at the lives of all the great men in Scripture, you'll see how God took them through a time of pain and suffering. We have to be broken of self-will. What do we say at the beginning? The hardest lessons in life to learn are those we think we already know. When I graduated from seminary, I went to East Tennessee and for five years I was an associate pastor and youth director. Had a great time. Five years there, wonderful experiences. Then I was called to my first church as senior pastor in Cleveland, Tennessee. And I inherited a mess. I mean, it was not of my doing, but I inherited it, and it was a mess. And when I stepped into the pulpit that first Sunday morning as the pastor of that church, it was my mess. And I had to deal with it. I've never been in a church where people hated each other more than in that church. And my burden and my desire was to see everybody come together. And see everybody kiss and hug and make up. And I was doing anything and everything that I could. To try to see God do that. We were getting the church paper from First Baptist Church in Atlanta. In the early 70s, Charles Stanley had gone there to be the associate pastor, and the senior pastor had retired, and the church called Charles Stanley to be the senior pastor. But there was opposition. And he went through a difficult, difficult time. In fact, he's the only man I know of who actually had a man was during a Wednesday night service, who was still during the service, walk up on the platform, come up behind him, and punch him. Well, I began reading that church paper and reading about how he was preaching a series of messages on brokenness. And in his pastor's column, he would talk about how on Sunday night, as he was preaching these messages on Sunday night, After he would finish the message, the altars would be full of people. 
getting right with each other and getting right with God. And in my mind, I thought, that's what needs to happen here. So what did I do? Got his tapes. And I began to listen to those messages, and I took notes, and I listened again, and I took notes. And finally I was ready, and I began to preach those messages that pretty much I tried to make mine so it wasn't total plagiarism. Every preacher steals from other preachers, you know that. So I preached that first message, and I preached with fervor and passion, and I gave the invitation expecting the altars to fill up. Nobody came, nobody responded. Next one in the series, same thing, same result, nobody responded. Third Sunday, I preached on brokenness and expected people to respond, and they didn't respond, and I thought, well, my last shot, the fourth message, and I prayed much, and I studied much, and I preached hard. Nothing happened. On Monday, trying to think back on these weeks, I began to say, God, what's wrong? What was the problem? And one of those times when God spoke, you, you mean He spoke audibly? No, it was clearer than that. God spoke saying, those messages weren't for them, they were for you. What do you mean, God? They weren't for them, they were for you. Before you can tell anybody about their need to be broken, you need to be broken. But God! Haven't I already been broken? Most difficult lessons in life to learn are those we think we already know. And God began to pull back the layers of my life and show me what was wrong with my life. And it wasn't pleasant. In fact, it went on for about a year. The Lord began to reveal to me people in the past that I had offended. Some when I was in college and I had to write to the alumni office and ask for addresses and write letters to people and say, when we were in school together, I offended you, I wronged you, I'm sorry. There was a situation regarding my mother that I had to get right. I grew up in Memphis and we were home on a visit one time and we were all in the car. My mother was sitting in the back seat and she was talking about my nephew who had married uh, a Church of Christ girl, and he had joined the Church of Christ. And I said, well, they'll want him to be baptized again. And my mother said, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I said, Mother, I know what I'm talking about. Oh, no, oh, no. Mother, I know what I'm talking about. I was right, but I was wrong in being right. Do you know that you can be right and be wrong in being right? So I had to confess that to my mother. When I was in seminary, we had uh, 
once a semester mission day. They'd bring in some missionary preacher. And uh, we'd have chapel with this guy preaching. And then they'd give an invitation to invite students to commit their lives to foreign missions. I would never go on mission day. I was scared to death God was going to call me to be a foreign missionary. So here I am in Cleveland, Tennessee, in the midst of everything that was going on. And I remember it clearly. It was on a Saturday night. I was sitting in bed looking over my sermon notes for the next morning. And the Lord again speaks. You mean audibly? No, it's clearer than that. And reminded me of my unwillingness to go to the foreign mission field. And the mess was so bad in Cleveland. I thought nothing can be worse than this. God, if you want me to be a foreign missionary, I'll be a foreign missionary. And the Lord said, don't want you to be, just want you to be willing. And that's never bothered me since. Never bothered me since. Look in chapter 42. And here's the crux of the whole message. Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Anything that you're going to do, God, you'll do, and nobody can stop you from doing it. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. God, all these years I've been talking about things that I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I'm ready to listen. Here's the point, folks. It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know God. It's one thing to know about Jesus Christ. It's another thing to know Him personally. And what bothers me and bothers most pastors that I know is that we minister to people who have confused knowing about God with knowing God. Who have confused knowing about Jesus Christ with really knowing Jesus Christ personally. And there is a vast, vast difference in all of that. Verse 6, Job repents. God, I'm sorry. Been wrong. You notice that God never says anything else to Job after he repents. The issue is settled. Some people would call this moment in Job's life an aha moment. You ever had an aha moment? Aha. I get it. I see it. I go to the city jail every Sunday afternoon. Been doing it for a number of years. Most interesting. I have some that go with me and help me. We basically have three services. We have one for the ladies. There are two big dorms there. We have a group go in one dorm. Another group goes in another dorm. And you can watch those guys. I'm not with the ladies, so I can't speak from first-hand experience with them, but I assume it's the same thing. But I watch those guys, 
and you begin to share the gospel with them, you begin to share how God loves them, how God can give them a new life, and they have aha moments. You can see, you can read their faces. But here's the problem. When they have an aha moment, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do anything about it. Luke 15, the prodigal son had an aha moment. He was in the pig pen. He was out of money and out of food. And Jesus, in giving this parable, said, and when he came to himself, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to get things right with my father because at least there's food there. That was his aha moment. But it says immediately, at that point, he got up and went to his father. The aha moments in jail many times end up by saying, when I get out of here, when I'm released, or when I get back home, or when then things are going to change. No, if things aren't going to change right now, they're not going to change. And so you try to press that point home with them. Guys, if Jesus has spoken to you and the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin, then now is the time for you to do something about what he's telling you to do something about. Not when you get out. Right now. Job had seen God as Isaiah saw God. And when he saw God, he saw himself. You know, we really don't know what we're like as an individual until we see God as he is. And when we see God in all of his glory, his glory provides light that shines in upon us and we begin to see ourselves as we really are. And the only response we can have in a situation like that is to say, Woe is me. God, I confess my sin. Take over my life. Like Job, God, I knew about you, but now I know you. And maybe some this morning, and only the Spirit of God can convict in this situation. But who may say, that's me. I've spent my life in church. I know a whole lot about God. But I don't know Him. He's not personal to me. I've learned all about Jesus in Sunday school. All the years attending Bible classes, I've known about Jesus, but I've never met him personally. Out at the South Campus, yesterday afternoon, I looked at all those people. All those people. And I found myself asking the question, I wonder how many of the people that are here this afternoon really do know what it is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I fear it may be as high as 90%. And the fields are white under harvest because there are people desperate to know that Jesus is real. Not up here, not knowing about him, but knowing Him. Hardest lessons in life to learn are those we think we already know. If we think we already know all there is to know about God and have a relationship with God like we ought to have, 
then we may be in a situation where God says, I can't teach you as long as you think you know everything. But when we say, God, I don't know it. I really don't. I love that passage in Philippians 3, verse 10, where Paul, at the end of his life, hey, Paul, as a Jewish boy, grew up being taught about God. But in Acts 9 on the Damascus Road, Paul came to know God, the God that he had known about. Now he knows him. And he had spent his life serving him, learning more and more. And here in Philippians 3, he's coming to the end of his life. But what does he say? In verse 10, he said, Oh, that I might know him. And the power of his resurrection. Paul, you've been serving him much of your life. You're saying that you want to know him. Yeah, I know a lot about him, but there's still so much more. I want to know. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Still learning. Still learning. Haven't arrived.